0: Hi, and welcome to Engage with Eagle Forum, a podcast to encourage the modern-day woman and her vital role in shaping society. I am one of today's hosts, Glenn McKay, a former executive director and current board member of Eagle Forum, and I'm joined by Eagle Forum's political director, Tabitha Walter. Hi, everyone. We are excited for today's conversation with Dr. OJ Oleka, and I promise we're not recording from a cave or underwater. I just have a cold, and I apologize for that. Um, But we're excited to have OJ on today. I met him a couple of years ago at a state financial officers foundation meeting when he was the deputy state treasurer of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And I will never forget our first conversation. I asked him what he wanted to do in life. And his answer was simple, yet profound. He said, I want to eradicate generational poverty. And I honestly was just blown away to meet someone so young with such a vision for his life. Um, a lofty yet world-changing mission. So we're excited for you to get to know him and to hear all that he is doing in the state of Kentucky. But before we begin, here are some things that you should know about him. Uh, I did call him O.J., but he should be referred to as Dr. Oleka. He is the president of the Association of Independent Kentucky Colleges and Universities, which focuses on increasing affordability and access to post-secondary opportunities for all Kentuckians at each of the institutions within his association. Prior to this position, Dr. Oleka was, as I mentioned, the Deputy State Treasurer of the Commonwealth, where he worked to protect property rights and to create policy that streamlined government, and he also helped write the financial literacy standards for the Kentucky Department of Education. He graduated from the University of Louisville with a bachelor's degree in marketing and a minor in political science. At UofL, he was the student body president and chairman of the Kentucky Board of Student Body Presidents. I think some might call that an overachiever. I don't know. (laughs) But after graduation, uh, Dr. Olenka joined Teach for America and taught middle school math in St. Louis. Just this year, he earned his PhD from Bellarmine University, where he previously earned an MBA. As the published researcher, he has focused on college affordability and systems alignment between school districts, post-secondary institutions, and the business community. And I feel like we could have an entire episode on just that. But uh, Dr. Oleka is the son of Nigerian immigrants. He is a brother to two older sisters, and he lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife, Jamie, and their baby girl, who's now three and a half months old. Dr. Oleka, we are thrilled to finally have you on the podcast. Thanks for being here.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me be with you. As many of your listeners will know, especially those who have little children, I am doing this podcast from my house With a a three-and-a-half-month-old baby, you will hear all types of baby sounds in the background. My wife has been gracious enough also to spend time with her during this hour, so you may also hear her in the background. So it's a family affair going on here, but uh, we are blessed to be with you. I'm happy to have this conversation, uh, and I think it's going to be exciting.
2: Awesome. Well, as moms, we are thrilled to hear baby noises in the background, (laughs) and the simplest, you know, we're in quarantine so it's inevitable. <laughs>
1: true. That is very true.
2: So we've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while because I mean, Glenn just listed all of your achievements, but you have so much more to say and so much more to inspire us with. So can you just start by telling your story so our listeners who so our listeners can know who you are and and where you come from and how did you get to where you are today?
1: Well, any Time that I mention at all who I am, it's important to understand who my parents were, specifically my father. My father grew up in abject poverty in a small village in Nigeria. He lost his father by the time that he was four years old. And he and his family and his mother decided that he had to do something to ensure that he could have a little bit of success uh, in this life. And so eventually what they decided on was that he would go to a school in Nigeria for grade school and, and high school and Live with a headmaster. And the headmaster, as my dad would describe it, was incredibly cool. He wouldn't even allow him to have his own bar of soap. He often wouldn't give him the same food that he would give the other kids. He basically made things more difficult on my father than they needed to be. But my dad, being a man uh, that I hope to be at some point, would always tell me why I would take the little pieces of bars of soap, the ones that were left behind from the other boys, you know, if you have a bar of soap, when it gets too small to really use and you throw it away, He would take those little pieces and make his own bar of soap because he knew that to be closest to God, you had to be clean. Cleanliness is closest to godliness, and that's the type of man that he was trying to be. So he would do all those things and eventually got through this difficult situation, took some odd jobs uh, across his community, but then ultimately decided he wanted to come to this crazy place called the United States of America and live the American dream. He met my mother, and he said, let's go do it. And so they did. They came to the United States and my father uh, came on uh, academic pursuits. He went to Wheaton College in Illinois and studied Bible there or something of the sort. And as a kid, I just assumed everything related to theology was Bible. He probably got a degree in something like theology. Maybe they called it Bible. I don't know. But that's what he studied uh, at Wheaton College. And then they moved up north to Michigan and he went to Michigan State University and got his master's and also his Ph.D., My mother got her degree in nursing, particularly labor and delivery. And that's where I was born. My sisters were born a few years before me, but I was born in Michigan in Ann Arbor in 1987. And we lived in Detroit for those first six years. And my father was an academic. And then we came to Kentucky, again, another opportunity for my dad to teach, to be a professor at Eastern Kentucky University. And we were there for a couple of years. And then we settled in Frankfurt in Frankfort, Kentucky, is the town that I called home. And that's where my father became a dean at Whitney Young College at Kentucky State University and eventually rose to become the dean of the Arts and Social Sciences and Interdisciplinary Studies uh, College at at, uh, Kentucky State University. This was a, a pinnacle of a man who was born into poverty, came to the United States, got an education, lived the American dream, and put three kids through college. And so here I am, fast forward at the University of Louisville, go cards, where I went to undergrad. And as you mentioned, Glenn, I had the opportunity to be student body president. It was a fantastic leadership experience, also to be a chairman of the board of student body presidents, and another fantastic experience to lead my peers in pretty interesting conversations uh, with then governor Steve Bashir, who his son is now governor. Uh, and I, it, it's an odd uh, point of serendipity. I actually joked with, uh, the governor about this. I said, you know, when your dad was governor, I was uh, promoted to chairman of the Kentucky Board of Student Body Presidents. Now that you're governor, I got to be president of the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. So when your kid gets ready to run, you let me know and I'll brush up my resume so I can get some, some great new job. But uh, effectively, in college, when I was trying to figure out what to do afterwards, People said, well, "Why don't you go into business? You're you're getting a degree in, in marketing and modern political science. You got this great leadership thing on your resume. What are you going to go do?" And I thought about my dad, and I thought about the educational experience that he got, and I said, "Well, if it was education that turned our family around, then I have a responsibility, an obligation, a duty to provide that same type of opportunity." for kids in this country. And so I taught with Teach for America. I taught middle school math uh, and my kids were incredible. They taught me a lot. I was at Yakeman Middle School in St. Louis, go Tigers. And it was throughout that experience, those two years, that I learned a couple pretty important and profound things. Every kid has the potential to learn. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, your zip code, your background. None of that matters, every kid can learn, you just need good adults who believe in you, people who are going to push you to be strong academically, but also hold you accountable, and also love on you a little bit, as we all need in our lives, we need a little bit of love, and and kids who have certainly gone through some challenges need that too. And so that was the first thing that I learned. I also learned, though, that it was important to develop frameworks and policies and systems to allow kids to learn, but also for their parents to get a good quality and decent job. Because again, those of us who've been blessed to have a parent or two have a job that is stable and can provide, we know that that makes a great deal of difference in our home. And of course, the the home is where all of this starts in terms of learning what you need to learn, the values that you need to have, and the discipline that is important for your particular context, all of it starts there. It's a lot easier to do, and the research bears this out, if you're economically stable. And so my thought was, if you can have adults who have good quality jobs, good quality careers, and kids who can get a good quality education, you can effectively end poverty overnight. I mean, those are the greatest indicators that we see. So this is where I got this big goal, as we might call it as educators, to end generational poverty in the United States. I think it can be eradicated. Again, it is certainly not an easy task, but it is a simple one in the sense that we know the symptoms, we know the factors, we know that people need good jobs, people need a quality education. And people need access to opportunity. So it was all those things that brought me back home from St. Louis. And I came back to Kentucky to recruit for Teach for America to make sure that we had good, better educators in the classroom doing things for kids. But I wanted to do more than that. I had an interest in getting involved on the policy side of things and the, the political aspect, because I knew it was important, again, if you're gonna make changes to the system, you're gonna make changes in policies and frameworks, but you need the good leaders to do it. And, you cannot govern if you cannot win. So ultimately, you had to go back to politics. And so that was my thought. And I ended up working for a guy who ran for governor, who ran on those issues, educational opportunity and economic mobility. My guy was unsuccessful, but it allowed me to meet a candidate for state treasurer, Allison Ball. And uh, she is who I worked for, uh, Glenn, again, as you mentioned, as deputy treasurer. And over that period of time, I was able to get an MBA Bellarmine University, go Knights, and then get my PhD uh, also from Bellarmine, and that is really what led me to this opportunity today to be president of the Association of Independent Kentucky Colleges and Universities, where I advocate for good public policy on behalf of those institutions, who, and many people wouldn't think this, but our institutions on average provide a quality education for the same percentage of Pell-eligible or low-income students as the public institutions. But we typically graduate them with manageable debt and higher incomes on the back end. So if people say that that private higher education or private education at all is just for the kids of elites, they're either wrong or they simply misunderstand what that education is for. So that has become an even greater passion of mine. But uh, that is effectively what has led me to where I am today. And I I would be remiss if I did not mention throughout that time in the Treasury, we in fact did lose my father. It was very early on in my time there at the Treasury, January 2016, and that was a profound experience for me as well because this man who was a a hero of mine then became somebody who I wanted to model my life after as an ode to him. Of course, we have Heavenly Father who guides us in all things, but mine on earth was pretty good too, uh, and so I want to make sure that I am honoring him. And so these are the things that I think about as I push forward in this important work I think about my dad, I think about my daughter, I think about my family and the the contribution I wanna make uh, this side of heaven. So that was a long, very long answer to one question. I hope we've got time for at least one of them.
0: (laughs) That's great. And you know, OJ and I have talked about this in the past, but we are both members of that very unwelcome club of um, people who've lost their fathers too early, who were blessed enough to have fathers who poured into our lives. um, And because of that, it really defined who and where we are today and so I just commend you for the way that you have picked up that torch that your father was carrying and are moving forward in a way that will profoundly impact future generations so thank you I do want to follow up on well so many things but specifically the the education aspect of this um we did an episode on school choice a couple of weeks ago and that has really provoked a bunch of, of questions so would you um help us understand kind of some of your experiences with Teach for America. I mean, first, why there is even a need for an organization like Teach for America, mm-hmm. and and what does education really look like in our inner cities and low-income areas, uh, and why do you believe in school choice? So can you just kind of encapsulate that all for us?
1: Sure, well, I'll, I'll start with Teach for America. It, it has a dual mission, and I think this is really important for people to understand what the organization is. Teach for America effectively finds people who believe in a quality education for every kid and asks them to teach for at least two years in a low-income community. And that community can either be urban where I taught, it can be rural where my wife taught, she taught, uh, in rural South Carolina. Now, again, the, the context here with rural is that rural doesn't always and only mean white families. It's, it's also a common misconception. It is rural white families typically in Appalachia, in the Appalachian region in, in Kentucky. Uh, but my wife taught rural black children. And that struggle is different than rural white children. And that struggle is different uh, than urban or, or than urban children, whether they be black or white or whatever color they happen to be. For my experience, what I learned pretty quickly on was that that was the first half of the mission, but the second half was important as well because Teach for America says, whatever you're doing, come take those talents, come take that leadership and apply it uh, in the context of kids. So you can be a good content leader, you can be good for behavior management, you can good to uplift your students, but also good in your community and within your school context. You can be an additional leader there and then if you decide to stay in the classroom or decide to be a classroom leader as as my wife did then that's the exact excellent route we want you to take but if you go back to whatever it is that you were doing let's say you were a college student who majored in biology you wanted to be a doctor well then go back and be a doctor but now you do so with the knowledge and understanding of how there are some systemic challenges that might plague the very patients that you see so you communicate with them differently you empathize in a way that you might not have before That is also profoundly important because that has an indirect effect on not only the kids and the families that you used to teach, but also communities like them across the country. So I think that's incredibly important because you need to have uh, an infusion of talent in a way that we desperately need within our education system. Now, I wanna be clear, this isn't to suggest that people doing education the traditional route aren't trying hard. We have a lot of incredibly good quality, hardworking educators who come up through the ranks. And in a lot of ways, they oftentimes don't have the resources or they're asked to do things that educators just simply don't have the tools to do. You hear the term wraparound services quite a bit. A, A kid comes to your classroom hungry, they come sleep deprived, they come with significant challenges. Well, if you're a math teacher who for the past four years, you were learning how to teach math and you didn't learn how to necessarily provide a socio cultural experience for kids, well, then you're probably going to struggle. These are some of the difficulties that exist within at least the urban context. I can speak to that specifically. Now, the reason why this matters in terms of education broadly in this idea of school choice is that there are institutions of learning where they do want to specialize in these types of benefits for kids. They do want to provide these extra resources. If it is additional wraparound services, if it's smaller classrooms, if it is a faith based, opportunity, whatever it might be, there are schools that desperately want to reach out and teach kids, again, many of them in an urban context, that simply come from a different background or could thrive better than a traditional education setting. This isn't to suggest that traditional education is bad. This isn't to suggest that traditional public school is bad. I went to a traditional public school, had a great experience. Again, my undergraduate experience in college was also public school. So I think there's a a lot of incredible things that we can learn, but the benefit with a choice opportunity in schools is that when kids come from different backgrounds and they want to try a different opportunity that may be private, they shouldn't be locked out of that simply because they don't have the money. I mean, we wouldn't accept that in in many other instances. We wouldn't accept that to suggest that, that if you are wealthier or whiter that you are able to have the privilege to go to a private high school or middle school or elementary school, we should provide those resources for kids who are not wealthy, kids who come from different backgrounds, kids who have disabilities, kids who may need additional resources. So that's why I'm for school choice opportunities, not to be negative or or to lock out public opportunities for traditional teachers and and students and families, but to provide an additional opportunity for those who might just want something different.
2: Yeah, that's great. We're kind of switching gears here, but not really. I I think uh, school choice has been an issue that we've heard a lot over the past week. Um, But let's dive into the politics a little more. Um, We are currently in a contentious election year. That's nothing. Oh, we are? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. and there's a huge spotlight on race relations right now, um, and and you're in an interesting position because not only are you a black man in America, but you're a conservative black man in America. Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean for you? Does your race inform your vote? And have your political experience, or what have your been, political experiences been in both the past and the present?
1: It's an interesting question. Again, especially. Uh, in the context of the times. Uh, it, it is unfortunate that people seem to be able to have this notion that if you're black, you can't be conservative. If you're conservative, you can't care for black issues. If you're black, you can't vote Republican. If, if you are a Republican, you can't be involved in issues that particularly impact the black community. I think that identity is important. And again, this could be a racial identity. This could be a faith-based identity. It could be some other identity. I mean, Again, the way that I identify as a father is significantly greater than it was this time a year ago. I mean, I wasn't a father at that point in time. The way I identify as a husband matters more to me than it did five years ago when I wasn't a husband. Identities change and identities deepen based on your own experiences. And for me, with regard to what I look like, it is profoundly important. And it does inform, in some contexts, the way that I think about my political philosophy. Again, if you look out through the history of this country, I think there are two dualities that ought to be understood. Whenever government gets bigger, there is this concern and often a reality that it is not beneficial to oppressed and marginalized communities. I mean, if you look at the very founding documents that we have, the Constitution, a brilliant document that obviously needed significant amendments and changes, it initially did not say that I was human and did not say that any of us could vote. So you think about a government document like that, that was designed to protect people from the government itself. From the very beginning, it had imperfections. Now, again, I think one of the greatness, one of the the awesome opportunities within this country, and one of the things that makes this country so great and so special is our ability to reform. It's our ability to get better and to improve, and oftentimes to do it in the least bloodless way possible. But I I do think it's important to understand that we've only gone to war one time with ourselves in this country. And that was over my humanity, this humanity of black people. So again, you think about it from a government context, it took a government to go to war with itself, brother against brother, as we say in Kentucky, one of the only state to be neutral in this whole thing, was that we needed something big and drastic for the importance of our humanity. Again, government had to overturn itself. And then you look, a generation later with segregation that was also government sanctioned you look a generation after that with the GI bill and some of the new deal policies that many people say contributed to significant wealth in this country black families were not able to get to participate if you were a black veteran coming back from world war 2 you could not participate in the GI bill you did not get loans from local banks because of something called redlining effectively local elected officials and local bankers would put a red line around certain communities, they were largely Black communities, and left them out of opportunity. This was government sanctioned. This is a big government telling a group of people they cannot fully participate in the American experience. We've seen this all throughout American history. And the reason why I bring up that context is because now, as a Black man, I am predisposed to be weary of large government. I am predisposed to be concerned about what happens if government gets too big, despite the best intentions of whoever might happen to be in power at that time. So when I look around and I see well, what political party or what political ideology is most consistent with limiting the power of government to take away my rights and liberties, it just happens to be the Republican party. I mean, again, this is what it was founded on in 1856 in Wisconsin, God bless the people up there going through some significant challenges now in 1856 and 1854, when the party was founded, it was a party founded on freedom, free men, free soil, free labor. It it was this idea that you were actually going to work hard and get the fruits of that labor. Then you had the radical Republicans and Abraham Lincoln and the rest is history. That's the party. That's the ideology that I subscribe to. So it it could have been Democrats. It it wasn't. It could have been the Know Nothing Party. It, It wasn't. It could have been The Whig Party, it wasn't. It happened to be the Republican Party. So in in my judgment, that is what is best for people of color, black people specifically. Now to to go deeper into the politics of this right now, it really is a problem, in my opinion, that people think just because the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or whatever political party you belong to doesn't espouse 100% of the views that you think it should if you are part of one of those parties that you're wrong. We see this specifically in the Republican Party, those of us who might lean conservative and happen to be Black. You have all kinds of awful names, awful things that are said about us. But what I encourage people to do is actually talk to the individual. See what you learn about them. What's their context? What's their story? And if you actually learn who people are, I think you'll have a different opinion about what they believe and why they believe. There are all kinds of people in, in each political party, the Republican Party in particular, who have different beliefs. It's a, it's a big tent party for a reason. But I think if your focus is on liberty, I think if your focus is on the rule of law and justice and opportunity, the way that looks like in policy can look a lot different in Maryland than it does in Kentucky, than it does in Wisconsin, and does in Texas or California. And I think that ought to be respected with regard to the federalist system that we have, but also with the individuality that every person brings to their political beliefs. So it my race does inform my vote, probably not in the way that many people think that it should, but it also doesn't consume it in the sense that I'm dragged to one side or the other because of the political beliefs and opinions of the day.
0: Wow. So good. Really good. Um, and it kind of, I, I do want to follow up with this question, though you kind of alluded to it, but... Uh, at the republican national convention vernon jones he's a, a black democrat from uh, georgia currently serving in the state house but he came out in support of president trump's re-election and the very next day he was trending on twitter being labeled an uncle tom mm-hmm. uh, several of the other speakers at the convention followed they were also black and they have been blasted on social media for being uncle toms as well what mm-hmm. is your response to that
1: Well, I don't support it. I mean, I I think using terms like that, Uncle Tom and and the others, I I don't think is helpful. And it's not helpful when white people use it. It's not helpful when we as black people use it against one another. And, And I'll speak to that from two different perspectives. One, if an individual believes that there is a pervasive, negative thought of white supremacy, this idea that because of who you are, because of what you look like if you're white, that you are supreme and therefore you need to keep a supreme race, how is it helpful for us as people to condemn one another because we have a difference of opinion? It isn't helpful. It doesn't create a sense of unity. It doesn't create this idea of linked fate, which many black folks believe in, which is this idea that if something good happens to you, it ought to happen uh, to somebody else who is also black. If one person succeeds, we all succeed. You hear my baby, she agrees. She agrees with this sentiment. So that's one perspective, the way I look at it. It's, just, it's simply not helpful, doesn't advance the conversation intellectually. I, I don't support that at all. But also from the other perspective, just because somebody has a different political belief or a different way to reach a similar outcome doesn't make them a traitor to their race because that's what they're saying. You call somebody Uncle Tom. you call someone something else, you're effectively saying that they would rather be subservient to the master than they would be for the liberation of their own people. And if you're for lower taxes, or if you're pro-life, or you're for school choice, or you're for economic opportunity, to me, that doesn't sound like subservient to anybody. It sounds like you are supportive of the idea of life. You are supportive of the idea of liberty. And you're supportive of the idea of opportunity. Those are things that we need in the Black community desperately. And to me, to suggest, just because somebody has come out in favor of one candidate or the other, for one reason or the other, that they themselves do not believe in liberty, I I don't think is fair. Now, I will offer a critique uh, to uh, Mr. Jones. I I also don't subscribe to this, uh, quote unquote, plantation language. I also don't think that's helpful for the same reasons. I don't think Uncle Tom language is helpful. I mean, you look at the history of this country, chattel slavery was a disgusting, awful aspect of our past. I mean, we we can't ignore it. It is a part of who we are as a nation and who we were, and, and we're trying to escape. And so to refer to a political party in the present as a plantation of any kind, I think also sends the wrong signal and it dilutes the very horrors and horrific situations that black people were subjected to when they lived on actual plantations because uh, they were considered to be property. So I I don't subscribe to that either for the same reason, but I think saying someone is an Uncle Tom because they have a different political belief than you is, is the wrong way to go.
2: Yeah, I, you know, we're hearing that rhetoric a lot, and I am glad you addressed it, um, because it happens on both sides, both parties. And we even heard Joe Biden recently say that if you vote for Trump, you are Black. And so when when Black families, Black individuals are making the decision to either join a certain political party or vote for a certain candidate what's your advice to them when they've been in this community that has said that Democrat is the way to go all the time? Um, What would you say to them as they're making that choice?
1: I'd say to them, think about this the way you would anything else, about where you would go to church, where you'd send your kid to school, where you buy your groceries, whatever other decisions you make. I mean, Black people, like anybody else, we put thought into our decisions. With politics, though, there's there's an interesting thing that happens with party politics specifically. There is a socialization with being a Democrat and being in the black community. I mean, it it comes up when I go to the barbershop, we talk politics. It's usually pro Democrat candidates, not necessarily because of policy or whatever, but those are the people that come around the community. Those are people who have been winning elections in the black community for a long time. So it's, not, again, not to diminish the, the real policy differences, but it's almost like a sports team. It's like, well, I mean, everybody else around me is a fan of the Cowboys or a fan of whomever. So I guess that's what I'm a fan of. And it's not, it's not that you aren't intelligent enough to think through it. It's just that you never really did. And so what I'd encourage people to do is think about what you believe and then think about which candidate is best talking about the issues. Because whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, they're not going to meet all of your issues 100%. I had someone tell me one time, if you want to find a candidate for office who believes in everything that you believe in, look in the mirror, then go sign up to run for office. And that's the case here. And and what I think a lot of Black voters will find is that they'll like candidates who, again, are pro-opportunity in terms of their economic disposition, who want to make sure that they're free to make their own decisions, who support the idea of strong families, who like this idea of kids getting a quality education. And I think what they'll find is that a lot of Republican candidates are talking about that all across the board. So I'd encourage them to look at each individual candidate and then decide, maybe you are a Democrat, maybe you're not. Maybe you're a Republican, gasp. But maybe you actually have different beliefs and ideas uh, than what the local team is telling you that you ought to. Again, it's not to say that you can't think for yourself, uh, but look at each individual and, and maybe you'll come to a different result.
0: That's good. Well, ex- expound on that further. I mean, let's go back to our shared core values. You know, what are some of the conservative principles that can really help black families that they should be considering?
1: Well, I think it's the one that black families already espouse. And, and family is certainly first and foremost. I mean, you look throughout the history of black communities, family is something that we have clung to desperately. I mean, again, if you look at the history of our country for a significant period of time, Uh, We were all we had. It was this idea that you had to look out for your family, which is why the idea of extended family is so important in the black community, aunties and uncles and grandmas and people looking out for one another, because family is critical. So I'd say look for a party that wants to promote and preserve your family that allows for the father and the mother uh, to be in the home. Again, if there are two parents there, we certainly hope that's always the case. But if it's not people who want to preserve your family and then also Opportunity and hard work. If there's one thing to understand about black people in this country, we work hard. We work hard for everything that we've got. We work hard for everything that we earned. We want to give it and pass it on to our family. So, what party or what elected official or candidate is talking about the preservation of wealth? So, this idea of family, this idea of opportunity, but also uh, this idea of equal protection under the law. And I think that's important to understand as well. When you look at Equal protection under the law means a few things. It means justice through the criminal justice system, and we've seen Republicans across the country, Rand Paul here, my home state of Kentucky, Tim Scott, so many others who have been invested in this cause for quite a long time. But it also, and here's the part where it gets uncomfortable, it also means a strong police force. It is important to have both to be protected by the law and also to be protected by law enforcement. And within the black community, whether it's in an urban context or elsewhere, oftentimes people feel over-policed but underprotected. And I think as a result, what you have to do is look at, well, who's in charge? What political party has been in charge of my community for quite some time? Who hired the police chiefs that are making bad decisions? Who hired these people that are making these decisions to lock up my brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and aunties and uncles? Who is making the decisions that's destroying my family, that's limiting my opportunity, that creates all these wealthy communities all around me, but mine for the past 50 years continues to be dilapidated. It continues not to have a whole lot of resources. So when you look at what issues and what values matter, family, opportunity, equal protection under the law. And I think when you look at those things, again, for the most part, at least I've found this, it's the conservative party, it's Republicans who really want to espouse these things. Now, again, to offer critiques, I'd say Republicans could do a better job in making this clear earlier uh, yeah. than August of an election year. Right. I think <laughs> if Republicans built infrastructures within Black communities throughout the years and just asked them, what do you want? I mean, it, it was funny. I did an exercise with my fraternity brothers. I am in a historically Black fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, the greatest fraternity in the world. Any of your listeners should know that. I asked them, I said, "What? what would make you vote Republican? And they said a lot of the things that I just said. It's this idea that I feel like elected officials are gonna look out for me. They're gonna make sure that I can afford, uh, whether it's uh, quality healthcare or my kids can go to a good school or I can get a good job. These are the things that we believe. And so we just have to do a better job, I think, of of sharing that message uh, and having candidates and elected officials who have credibility within the communities. And then, then I think we can win a lot more votes.
2: Absolutely. Gosh, I, so your comments made me think of this ad that was run for a candidate in Baltimore, and she walked through the Baltimore community and showed the destruction and the, the areas that you don't see when, when Baltimore is advertising for you to come visit. And, and, you know, she laid out those principles. These, these are not what the Black community wants in our neighborhoods and so i think that message is starting to come to light and it is becoming clearer we're just a little late in the game i think (laughs) and so yeah you you hit the nail on the head and it's so enlightening it's so fresh to hear someone um bringing this to light so um but you aren't just bringing this to light on today's podcast you're doing this on a regular basis And you're putting your beliefs into action in a very unique way. You've joined forces with a friend from college who is actually on the opposite side of the political spectrum to form a coalition called Anti-Racism Kentucky. And the purpose of that is to identify and target institutional racism. I just love this because our nation is so divided on politics right now and you have found ways to discuss some really controversial issues. And even agree on those. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. let's talk about specifics. Uh, You look, we we look forward to hearing from our listeners about this as well um, because all of us are having these conversations and some of them we shy away from, some of them we go in way to full force with. So um, how would you define institutional racism? Where do you see evidence of it? And where do you and your liberal co founder of Arc find common ground
1: yeah well and and I appreciate this question and I, I always like to give the disclaimer whenever you start talking about racism uh, in in a deep way it it gets uncomfortable and I want to acknowledge for your listeners you might feel some discomfort uh, bubbling up in your system that's okay that's a good thing and the reason why I think it's a good thing is because it should be uncomfortable. I don't. I don't think too many people want to be racist. I don't think too many people uh, would openly say, "I hate other people from different races." So it, it's it's good to feel that discomfort. Now, again, I, I must say first and foremost, as a as a believer, as a child of God, I think that racism is a sin. I think it's part of this problem that we have as a, a fallen people, where we do have biases, where we sometimes just dislike people because they're different than us. It it has happened since the beginning of time, uh, and it will stay with us until the end of time. So I, I I look at racism as a heart issue It's something that's deep within the soul that only uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ can really pull out of your heart if that's in fact where it is. Now, what happens though with institutional racism is that what's deep in the soul starts to seep into the system. Now, what that looks like can be in a, a few acute ways that I'll, that I'll offer here right now. Let's say um, you are applying for a loan and you are a black business owner, you've got a business plan and you get denied that loan. And then the same plan for that same business is offered up to the same bank, but instead of you, it's somebody who's white and they get that loan. That would be an example of how institutions can look at someone's race and say, everything else was the same, But the only difference when race was involved was that the black person didn't get the loan and the white person did. Now, again, this sounds like something that might have happened 100 years ago. I was on a call just a month ago where a black entrepreneur was explaining how this happened to him. And they verified it because, again, they took the same plan and they put a white woman's name on it and the plan got approved for a loan. So this becomes a troubling thing that happens because then you start to think, well, how many other people, how many other great Americans, great American entrepreneurs have incredible talent, but because some loan officer has some awfulness in their heart, in their soul, that they've seeped it into the system. And now plenty of people are left without opportunity. And here's why this becomes a problem for conservatives, because if that budding entrepreneur, that black entrepreneur doesn't get that loan, maybe they can't create jobs within their own community. And so now those jobs that weren't created now need to be people who get subsidized by the state. So all of a sudden you had people who could have produced for their community, who could have created wealth now are going to be asking for financial assistance from the state. So you have this double influx where you've got this moral ethical wrong of institutional racism, but now you have an economic injustice and a hardship where the state is spending more money, which conservatives we certainly don't like. So that's one aspect of this. Another aspect is with regard to maternal mortality. You look at maternal mortality rates in this country, Black women are more likely to die during childbirth at a rate of three times higher than the average population of women, two and a half times higher than white women. So you think, well, what what causes that? And then you start to look at uh, studies that show that uh, medical students who have been asked, they believe that because of black people's skin, they think that they are more tolerant of pain. They think their skin is tougher. You look at other studies that have shown that some uh, white doctors believe that black people just simply can uh, deal with pain treatments in a different way. So they prescribe they them or prescribe them differently. And so from a medical context, you think, well, how does this look if I'm a black woman and I get one of those doctors? And I'm pregnant, and I say, well, look, I've, I've got some pain here. The doctor says, oh, you'll be fine. Now, they don't explain, you'll be fine because I think that you've got tougher skin because you're Black. They just say, oh, well, you'll be fine. So again, this is the hate in someone's heart that seeps into a system and could potentially contribute to some of the factors that lead to a higher maternal mortality rate. Now, we don't know. and I, I want to be upfront about this. I'm, I'm not one of those who believes that every challenge and problem within the Black community is because of some grievance caused by some white person. I don't subscribe to that belief. But what I do think is that if it can't be explained by the hard work and the effort, if it can't be explained by the business plan and the opportunity, or if it can't be explained by a behavioral change, as we see with suspension rates with black males, for example, are significantly higher than their white peers, despite no evidence that their behavior is any different. But we also know that when people see pictures of black boys, they age them four years older, you start to think, well, what causes some of these things? And so what we're doing in anti-racism in Kentucky is trying to get to the root of these challenges. Again, we're looking at data, we're looking at research to figure out what it can tell us. And then what we, what we plan to do within the spring is ask our General Assembly to really begin to act on some of these issues, to really uh, ask our Department of Public Health, to ask our Department of Education to make some of these reforms, specifically to uh, not suspending kids uh, in, in early childhood. If it's kindergarten or, or first or second grade, there's there's no research evidence that said that's beneficial to kids. Kids need to be socialized with their peers, with others. And if you're suspended in, in a situation where you're not learning at home and you're not learning at school, then what, in fact, are you learning? You're not really improving on, on your conditions. Or uh, understanding what our maternal mortality rates might look like or looking at what our... Housing breakdown and situation is, and and so we're asking our General Assembly to approach these challenges from a methodical way, not trying to legislate some idea one way or the other, uh, politically or whatever it might be, but to make sure that these solutions are in fact bipartisan, so that the outcomes can be nonpartisan. That's always our focus uh, within anti-racism, uh, Kentucky.
2: You know, on on that note of the maternal mortality rate, I. Um, the first I heard of that was this year and Mm -hmm. I looked it up because it, it just doesn't sound right. Like I I said, there's no way that could be happening. And when I looked it up, it was very true. And so I want our listeners to know that these things are happening. Um, it may not be blatant and you may not hear those exact words, but it's just bizarre to me. And so if we are the party of pro-life then we need to treat not only children who are in the womb, but the mothers who carry them with respect and value and make sure that they can thrive in their lives as well.
1: that's absolutely right, Tabitha. And and I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you shared that this is the first you learned about it this year, because I think what also happens too often is that people who maybe knew this information for a long time, years, decades, they'll look at somebody who didn't know it and say, oh, well, why, why did not you understand this? You must be racist. <laughs> and to me, that, that certainly isn't helpful. It, it often, the case is not true, and it, it stunts the possibility of a conversation where there, in fact, could be common ground. Because again, as you mentioned, if you're a conservative and if you're a Republican and you're the party of pro-life, then this, in fact, should be an issue to you. If you believe in families. Having mothers who go through the difficult challenge of being pregnant and going through childbirth and then losing their lives because somebody didn't think that they were worth saving, this is a violation of family. This is a violation of family values, and that should be something that is deeply concerning to us. If we can prevent a child losing their mother at birth, then we should be doing that. And and so I'm I'm very – it pleases me to hear you say that uh, because I think that's important to understand.
0: With all of the problems that you're targeting are there always policy prescriptions I'm, I'm thinking about the, the the business owner you're talking about um, we redlining separate obviously but I know we know that that's been outlawed we know that there's been I'm sure there's an anti-discrimination law wherever this gentleman lives I mean what to me when I hear that I think is there a policy prescription or is that an issue that needs to be dealt with with that loan officer
1: yeah. Yes, to, to, to that second question, it, it would be something that would be individual to the loan officer. And it, and it isn't always a policy prescription. And there is a differentiation between these, these two ideas. Effectively, from a policy, a state policy standpoint, if there are, for example, tax credits that are given out from the state to certain businesses, what we're asking the state to do is look at the demographics. We know that there are black entrepreneurs out there. Are they getting access to these opportunities at the same rate as everybody else? If not, well, that could be an example of how a state government institution is not doing what it ought to do with the equality of opportunity. That could be a policy change. Now, as it relates to the business community, where I think more of this stuff could be done deliberately, it's businesses and chambers of commerce choosing to make sure that every entrepreneur, regardless of their background or their race, is aware of these opportunities that might exist for additional funding. If it is uh, private to private, a a private business opportunity from a private loan, if it is private to public, there's an opportunity for public funds. Chambers of Commerce, if they're going to be doing this for businesses anyway, they ought to make it a priority to ensure that they can do this for communities that need the resources the most. I I look at a city like Louisville, Kentucky, where I live, there is this uh, touting of $14 $14 billion of investment in the city over the last 10 years or so. Only 6% of that has gone into West Global, where the where majority of the residents are black. And so the question becomes, if you're a city, why are you investing a lot of your resources in other communities that are simply already doing well? If the public's responsibility is to ensure that everybody has an opportunity to succeed and thrive, then a lot of those resources, again, could be moved into communities that could benefit significantly from those resources. One of the things that's happened here in Kentucky is that our state chamber of commerce and our local chamber of commerce have offered some of these resources for these communities to look at ways uh, for black business owners and black businesses to thrive. You hear my daughter, she wants to be an entrepreneur. Some, she's excited about these things. But it's this idea that the chambers and the local communities can get involved in a significant way. And, and I've been blessed because they've asked me to participate in some of those conversations so I know that they're going uh, in a positive direction.
0: Well, we're gonna have to have a follow-up episode or maybe we'll do a Facebook live or something, but I want um, this is the start of a great conversation and you know if you're listening right now and you have questions about this, uh, we want you to ask them. so uh, OJ, where can people go to follow you and follow your work?
1: Sure. well you can follow me on Twitter that's where I'm most active on this stuff at OJ Oleka, which is o j o l e k a at Twitter, and then also you can follow Anti-Racism Kentucky also on Twitter, which is Anti-Racism KY. So I'd, I'd encourage you to give me a follow. Uh, you'll, you'll see some interesting stuff there about politics, about higher education, and every once in a while, my sweet daughter, Riley. So I'm, I'll be happy to receive your new follows and all your hearts and retweets.
2: Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, OJ. If you are listening to our podcast, don't forget to subscribe, please share with your friends and leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on all the major social media outlets and at EngageWithEagleForum.com. From your house, to the state house, to the White House, this is Engage With Eagle Forum.